1 Peter 1, 1 through 5. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good evening. My name is Pastor Brooks. Thank you for joining us. Uh, for those of you who are maybe newer to Grace Downtown over the last couple months, welcome. Glad that you were here. For those of you students that are returning and just joining us, thank you for choosing to worship with us. I'm the lead pastor of Grace Community Church. I do most of the teaching in our North Liberty uh, location. But my wife, Stacy and I, um, we attend here uh, every Sunday. Well, when we're not out of town. but So you'll see us around, but you won't see me primarily doing most of the preaching. That's Jason. He's our campus pastor, and you're very familiar with him. But it's a privilege to worship with you and be able to bring, bring you the word uh, this evening. We are starting, tonight is our first Sunday, in a series on the book of First Peter. On the book of First Peter. And the, the theme for this, this series is, is a question, and it's, where is your hope? If you look at the, if you look at the, the PowerPoint slide here, there's some there's some words which are grayed out. They're kind of in the background, but you can read them. Uh, everyone, everyone, whether or not you are a follower of Christ, whether you're a theist or whether you're an atheist, it, it doesn't really matter. Everybody needs hope, and everybody lives their life putting their hope in something. So it's not a matter of if you have hope. The question is, where is your hope place? Where is your hope placed? For some people, it is, we're going to find here in 1 Peter, the object of our hope is a living hope. It's, it's Christ. But that's, that's confessionally true for, for most Christians, but sometimes it's not functionally true. And for those of you who maybe not be followers of Christ, um, your hope is in something else. Your hope is in, you're coming here to the University of Iowa and you're in grad school and you want to get that PhD or, or your hope is, is in this new relationship, this new romance or this new marriage or this new family that's been started or maybe you're a little bit older like me and your, your hope is in your port, well, not my portfolio, but maybe your portfolio, your retirement plan. You're, you're building something and you're looking forward to something. Everybody has a hope, a hope in something. Everybody has a hope in something. Now, the word hope, though, it's important that we, we start with a baseline definition. I'm not talking about the English understanding of the word hope the way that we often use the word, meaning a synonym for wish. Like, I hope it doesn't rain tonight because I'm going to eat at a particular restaurant that has outdoor seating. That's a wish. It's, a, it's not anything that changes your life, but it's just a, it's a wish. You want it to happen Maybe you're not sure if it's going to happen. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about, a biblical understanding of hope, this is taken from Paul Tripp. Uh, Paul Tripp is a biblical counselor. He is a conference speaker on marriage, a number of different Christian topics. And he says that hope is a confident expectation of a guaranteed result that changes 
the way you live. Let me just read that one more time. Hope is a confident expectation of a guaranteed result that changes the way that you live. See, hope, hope is what drives you. Hope is what gets you out of bed in the morning. And when you are suffering and when you are in a trial, a tribulation, a difficult season of your life, hope is what gives you the ability to push through that and continue on. Endurance is not possible without hope. And here's the thing. Hope can be lost. Hope can be lost. There is a trend in our culture, in Western civilization, but in particular America, you see that there is a sense of rising hopelessness, especially amongst individuals that are younger than my generation. I'm, I'm amongst the older crowd here in the downtown campus, but amongst the younger generation, there is a growing trend of growing a sense of anxiety, a sense of depression, and a sense of hopelessness. And, and you, you have to stop and you have to pull back and say, why? We say it could be COVID, but that's true. But pre-COVID, that was already a trend. So there's a sense in which we live in the most affluent society that the world has ever known, and people are more anxious and more hopeless than they ever have been. What gives? What gives? There's a, um, I call him a pop philosopher, pop philosopher, a blogger, best-selling New York Times author, writes a lot of different self-help books. And I was looking at something he said recently. He said that if he worked at Starbucks, which he doesn't, but if he was a barista and he worked at Starbucks, you know, when you come in and you say, I want 16-ounce coffee, and they say, what's your name? And you just write, they write the, your name on the cup, right? He said, I wouldn't write people's names. Here's what I would write. So on the sleeve of the coffee cup, here's what I would write. In very, very small font. One day you and everyone you love will die. Beyond a small group of people, for an extremely brief period of time, little of what you say or do will ever matter. This is the uncomfortable truth about life. And everything you think or do is but an elaborate avoidance of it. We are inconsequential cosmic dust, bumping and milling about on a tiny blue speck. We imagine our own importance. We invent our purpose. We are nothing. Would you like whipped cream with that? Now, he writes self-help books. There's, there's, an ir- there's a sense of irony here. I can't tell you the, the title of his book because there's profanity in the title of his book. But the irony is that this individual, here's what he's saying. We're cosmic dust. We live on this little blue speck. Your lives are meaningless. There's absolutely no purpose. But I've just written a 300-page book that'll help you find meaning and hope in this life. I kid you not. That is becoming a more prevalent worldview in our culture, and we can't figure out why our world seems to not have any hope. (laughs) So first, Peter, the author here, is speaking to a group of people who 
who are really, truly suffering, their, their times are different than ours. They are under persecution. They are experiencing intense persecution. They're living, for most of them, in poverty. Because they've come to Christ, they're no longer affluent. There's a true cost to following Jesus, and they're in pain, physical, emotional, psychological, and even spiritual. And they're wondering, where is my hope? And Peter's saying, there is hope. There is hope. There is hope. If you lose hope, how do you go on? How do you go on? The author here, Peter, is going to show us where we can find that hope. Here's what we're going to look at tonight in the text. We're only going to cover three verses. I know five verses were read. We'll get to, get to the uh, second half next week. But three things we're going to see in, in just three verses. Number one, where hope isn't. Where hope isn't. We look for it in certain places, but it's not there. So we're going to see where it's not. Second thing we're going to see is where is hope located? Okay, it's one thing to define in the negative where you can't find it, but then where can you find it? That's the second thing. And then the third thing we're going to see is, okay, now that I know where to find it, how do I obtain it? How do I, how do I have it? How do I possess it? So those three things, where it isn't, where it is, and how do I obtain it? So that's what we're going to look at. So open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1, and let's ask the Spirit to show us where this hope is and how we can actually experience it. Father, we come to you in humble adoration and dependence. Lord, um, we are looking for hope. And many of of us here are are Christ followers, and maybe some aren't, but Lord, all of us need hope. And and, uh, we just pray, Spirit, that you would show us where that hope is and how that we can have it. We know that the Word of God is, is inspired, it's living, it's active, it's a double-edged sword. Would you use it to open up our hearts and, and bring healing where healing is needed, uh, bring encouragement where encouragement is needed, and conviction where that's needed. Lord, we pray that you would do a work in our hearts that would help us to worship and help us to, to be steadfast and, and to send our roots down deep and bear fruit and experience the joy of knowing that hope. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let's take a look at the text. First of all, where hope is not. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So this is Simon Peter. This is the Peter that we're all familiar with, or maybe you're not familiar with, but he is one of the 12. He is one of the, one of the three, uh, Peter, James, and John, that was most closest to Jesus. He's the one that made bold statements, said a lot of things, didn't think before he spoke. And, and so that's who we're talking about. That's the author here. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, to whom is he writing? He identifies them. He says, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. There is a lot there theologically, and we could spend an entire series on everything in those two verses, but I want to focus on just what he refers to them as. So he calls them something to the what? There's three words, the elect, elect exiles of the dispersion. That tells us something about the audience. 
it tells us about something about the audience. The word elect, it means chosen. The Greek word means chosen or selected for a purpose, picked out of. So God specifically plucked these individuals out of their circumstances, out of their worldview. Some of them are Jewish background believers. Some of them are Gentile background believers. But regardless of their ethnicity and their heritage, he has chosen them. He's elected them. But that's not the only word that he uses. He says, the elect exiles. So the word elect modifies the noun exiles. That's a strange term. That's a strange term. Exiles. The word exiles, if you read from a King James Version, it means, it's translated sojourner. It means residing temporarily, stranger. And then he says, of the dispersion. What's that about? The dispersion, this could mean, you can't prove it from the text here, but it could mean when Peter first preached on Pentecost, there were Jews from every nation gathered in Jerusalem for the festival of Pentecost. And the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the disciples, upon the apostles. They spoke in, in various languages and the people heard them in their own languages. And 3,000 individuals were saved just on one day and then thousands thereafter and then thousands thereafter. So the church is, is exploding. All these Jews from all these nations are in Jerusalem and all of a sudden there is a... There is a um, a logistical crisis. There's a refugee crisis because these, these Jews, they're not going home. They've received a new community. They've received a new identity. They've received a living hope. And they're very happy the way they are. So there's this, Jerusalem is swollen like, like Iowa City um, on, a, on a football Saturday. 70,000, but they don't go home. They don't go home until the persecution starts. And then Stephen, the first martyr, he is stoned to death at the hands of who later becomes Paul, the apostle. And it says in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, that beginning with, uh, beginning with the persecution, the Jews dispersed. The Jewish Christians dispersed. They went back home. They made their way. So it's, it's safe to assume that Peter's referring to the Gentile and Jewish Christians who are now finding themselves in a precarious position that they are a minority a minority in a culture that despises them. And hence, what they've discovered is they're not at home. They're exiles. The Jews have a history of understanding what it means to be an exiled people. Bo, in his liturgy, is taking us through Nebuchadnezzar. The context here is Daniel is serving as an exile under a pagan king. Babylon is not his home. The people that are living in Babylon that are Jews, that is not their home. They don't want to be there. And that's who Peter's writing to. So what do we learn from this? What we learn is this world is not our home. You cannot find hope on this terrestrial blue speck. It's not here. Oh, but we'll really try hard to find it, but it's not here. So when Peter addresses them as exiles, this is a theme. A few verses later, we'll get to this in a few weeks, but chapter, seven, chapter 1, verse 17, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. 
throughout the time of your exile. Then later in in chapter 2, verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, there it is again, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. What Peter is, 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 these individuals have discovered something. This world is not their home and there's no hope to be found here. There's no hope to be found here. They always, they feel excluded. They feel marginalized. They're persecuted. We're going to see this as we go through 1 Peter. I know that there's talk of culture wars, and in a sense there is a culture war in, in our culture, and that's all fine. But this holiday season, when you're at Target and, and they say happy holidays and they refuse to say Merry Christmas, that's not persecution. It's, it's really not. It's really not. These individuals, these, these, these exiles that were followers of Christ, and they, they discovered this world is not their home, they're suffering intense persecution. It's dangerous to follow Jesus. They don't feel at home. There's no hope on this terrestrial blue speck. That's, what, that's, what Peter, that's why he calls them exiles, himself included. He's referring to his people, us, the body of Christ, as, as, as exiles, sojourners, strangers, Strangers in this world. And then lastly, Hebrews. Book we covered a couple years back. These all died in faith, referring to the Old Testament saints. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers in exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have been have an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared for them a city. So that's principle number one. Where hope isn't, it's not here. It's not here. Here being this terrestrial planet, this our This world is not our home. This world is not our home. Let's move on to the next point here. Where is it then? Where is hope? Verse 3, and we're going to stop at verse 3. We'll come back to that next week. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. According to his great mercy. don't, Don't miss that. Hang on to that. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again in a living hope. A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, next week we're going to unpack what that living hope is. But this living hope is in a person, the resurrected Christ. We are born again into this living hope. Let's take a look at some other verses. Verse 13, therefore prepare your minds for action. Being sober-minded, set your hope, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So again, the hope is not anything you can find here, but it's in a person. It's in a person in the work of Jesus Christ. And and in this case, setting your hope on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Christ. And then chapter 1, verse 20 and 21. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope, so that your faith and hope are in God. 
Okay, so what do we, what do we have so far? Where, where our hope can't be found, can't be found here, where our hope is, it's in the person of Jesus Christ, the eternal Christ, the Son of God. That's what we know so far. Okay, now let's deal with some objections before we get to how to experience that hope. Let's deal with some objections. Now before I get to the objections, just an objection for the fact that I'm going through objections. Some of you, this is the part where you kind of, you gloss over and you're like, I don't have any objections. Uh, Just tell me what the Bible says. Yes, you do. Just wait. Just wait. Probably, maybe not the first one, but the second one you'll, you'll identify with. Because I do. I'm, I'm guessing you're similar to me. So the first objection, it's a secular objection. Now, when I say secular, I'm, I'm talking from a materialist worldview. I'm talking of the worldview of the guy who wanted to work at Starbucks but's overqualified because he's a philosopher. That's what I'm talking about. Secular person who believes that we are here, we are alone in this universe. We're a product of matter, time, and chance. We're here because, just because. There's no purpose. There's no purpose. And, and so the secular person objects to the idea of trying to find hope in something which is transcendent, something which is beyond anything we can see, grab a hold of, taste, smell, measure, way, okay? The, the, the secularist, Karl Marx is an example of this. He is, he's an atheistic Jew. I know that sounds like an oxymoron, but of German heritage, founder of communism, if you will. And here's, it's a very famous quote, but let's just take a look at what, what Karl Marx said. He said, religion is the opium of the people. It is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of the heartless world, and the soul of our soulless conditions. Would you like whipped cream with that? It's, it's depressing to read that, but think about what he's saying. Now, it's important to note that he's not speaking to the evangelical West in America. In his context, when he is talking about religion, he's talking about the state religion, in his case, Germany and the Lutheran church. So if you were German, you were Lutheran. Or if you want to apply it to Lenin's culture, uh, if you were Russian, you were Orthodox. And what both of them saw was that these state religions tend to perpetuate injustice and the oppression of the poor. So the poor people are just simply told, well, it's God's plan and so smoke your opium, feel good about your pain and misery, but don't expect anything else. And Marx is saying, that's garbage. He has a point. He has a point. Now, when you, when you listen to Richard Dawkins or Sam Harris or any of the modern atheists of our own day that, that are secularists, they're not talking about that. They're talking about the idea that, that say, an evangelical, someone who f- believes the Bible is true, is... They're using religion as a crutch. They're not dealing with reality. There is no meaning in life, so just suck it up. Oh, but if, if, if I believe that someday I go to heaven and my sins are forgiven, I can get through life. And, and it's essentially just taking opioids. And that's a crisis, and literally, in our nation. So don't do it. So don't take the religious opium. That's, that's the secularist idea. I'm going to guess that probably most of you don't fall into that category. There might be some. There might be some. It would be 
naive to assume that everybody that comes to a church service is a theist and they believe in God and, and they bought wholeheartedly into the Bible. That's, that's doubtful. That's doubtful. And if, if, that, if you are in that category, you need to understand that you are completely welcome here and we're glad that you're here. We're not going to jump on you and judge you and how dare you be a secularist. You know, I wasn't a believer my whole life. I came to Christ when I was in college. I didn't know what I believed. So if you're not sure, that's, that's okay. That's okay. And, but most of you probably don't have that objection. Most of you don't. But there is a Christian objection. There is a Christian objection. It goes like this. I want my best life here, and I want my best life now. There is a popular book which has made a kajillion dollars on this theme alone. The principle is not of that particular theology or that particular bent within Christianity. The emphasis is not to help you understand that this world is not your home. The emphasis is to help you understand that Christ can help you get your best home here. Literally. So there are individuals who who find it distasteful to think of ourselves as sojourners and exiles who really don't belong, who shouldn't put down roots, who, who shouldn't try to find our place in this world permanently, but rather just see ourselves as strangers passing through. No, no, no. Jesus wants you to have your best life here on this blue speck. And that's the goal. Now, I doubt that if you have that worldview, you're going to send me emails uh, objecting to the content of this sermon because it's just simply from Scripture. But you'll order your life around what you believe and where your hope is. And consequently, when all of those things you're putting your hope in, one by one begin to disintegrate, you'll find yourself hopeless and lost. And your soul will be harmed because of it. Peter's thinking, I don't want that to happen. I want you to understand where your hope is. I want you to understand where you can't find it. Your hope is not here. Your hope is not here. If you feel somewhat guilty because if you're honest, you're like, okay, it's, if, I, if, if I'm telling the truth, I kind of identify with that second one. I want, I want my best life here. Why do you think I'm spending tens of thousands of dollars in grad school? So I can not make my way in this world? So there's a sense in which you're, you're, there's, you're conflicted. You want to make... You want to have a good life here. You want to have a good life now. You want to raise a family. You want to build relationships. You want to find a good local church. You want to get a good job. You want to have a career. You want to make your way in this world. And so maybe you are having your hope in this world. And so it's difficult. You can cross that line. If, if, if you're finding yourself conflicted right now, you're in good company because so is Peter. So turn to Matthew chapter 16. We're going to take a look at Peter's journey, journey ex exposure, the exposure of how his hope in this world was, was exposed. Let's take a look. So Peter's confessional hope, his confessional hope, this is what he says he believes. This is what he says he believes. So in Matthew chapter 16, this is a very famous scripture. Verse 13, now when Jesus came in the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say that you're John the Baptist, others Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. Well, he said to them, well, 
Who do you say that I am? Now Peter speaks up. Peter replies, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. That is Peter's confessional hope. That's where he's, he's confessing that his hope is in Jesus, the Son of God, who is the anointed Messiah. And he nails it. He gets a gold star for his confessional hope. And I believe that many, including myself, in the body of Christ, can nail the confessional part. If you said, Brooks, where is your hope placed? My, my, my knee-jerk reaction is to just say, Jesus. Where's your hope? Jesus. Well, of course your hope is Jesus. You're a pastor. What else is your hope is going to be in? And some of you have been raised in the church and you know the answer. You know the right answer. Jesus. Jesus is my hope. Jesus is my Savior. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is everything. Until he's not. Until he's not. Let's take a look at, at, at Peter's functional hope. You only have to wait 30 seconds before he, he exposes what he really feels. We're at a heart level where his hope is. So in verse 21, a few verses later, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside. Let's just stop right there. Note to self. Brooks, never take Jesus aside. It's always unwise to pull Jesus aside and try to correct him on whatever he just said. But Peter, being Peter, he's going to pull Jesus aside and get him in line. Not only does he want to get him in line, it says that he rebuked him. He pulled him aside and rebuked him saying, far be it from you, Lord, exclamation point. That's the caps, all text caps. Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned to him and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not, catch this, get this, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You see that? We're, we're talking about, these are, these are right up, his, con, his confession of hope is spot on. But immediately, immediately, we don't even get through the day. Well, I can't tell you that it was the same day. But it's really, it's right on top. Now he's revealing what he really thinks. What is he, it's not, did he stop, did he stop believing that Jesus was the Messiah? What do you think? No, but what he did reveal was the purpose of the Messiah in his own mind. What, what does Peter think the purpose of the Messiah is? To get him his best life here and now. Peter and the other disciples were convinced that Jesus was going to come and restore Israel to its former prominence under King David. They were convinced that he was going to drive out the Romans, that he was going to clean up the corruption, that he was going to establish a political entity like his forefather, David. And, and Peter and James and John and the rest of them, they were going to have their best life here and now in Jerusalem, literally reigning on a throne. 
In fact, earlier, we, we see that a couple of the brothers are like, hey, we want to sit on your right and your left when you're ruling. This is what they believe. This is their functional hope. Their functional hope. So if, that, if that's you, if yes, you love Jesus and you believe that someday you're, he's, you're going to be with him in heaven and he's forgiven your sins, but if you're really truly honest, what do you dream about? What are your hopes? What are your dreams? What are your aspirations? What gets you going? That's the question. That's the question. Is it your relationship that's newly started for some of you? For some of us that are older, is it how your kids turn out? That's where your hope is. It's, is it the establishment of, of some goals and some aspirations that, that if you can check these boxes off as you succeed, then, then you will find meaning in this life? At no point am I claiming that none of you or myself don't love Jesus. That's not the point. Peter loved Jesus. But he's revealing something. He's revealing that he expects Jesus to give him everything that he's planning and working for on this earth. He's hoping for something tangible that he can get his hands on. And what does Jesus say? You're setting your mind on the things of men and not the things of God. You are not living as an exile. You're living like someone who's setting up shop and you have no plans on going anywhere. That will destroy your soul. Okay. Let's move on to the how. How do we possess this hope? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again into a living hope. You have to be born again. Now, let me just quickly establish... Born again is not a type of Christian. Like a pepperoni pizza is a type of pizza. But some of you are like, I don't like pepperoni. I like sausage. So I'm not a born again Christian. I'm a sausage Christian, whatever that is. There's all, there, born again is not a flavor. It's a description of how someone becomes a Christian. Paul puts it this way. We were all once dead in our trespasses and sins, but we were made alive in Christ by grace. We were born into the kingdom. Jesus tells Nicodemus, you can't even see the kingdom of heaven unless you are born from above, born of water and the Spirit. You must be born again. Everyone who has their hope in Christ is born into that. But according to how though, how? What caused it? What was the, what was the prime cause? Well, I came to my senses one day and I just, I just, I just love Jesus. Yes, but why? What's he say? According to his great mercy, he has caused us. Who caused us? Who? What's the text say? I'm not trying to be clever here. What, what's the text say? Who caused us? He caused us. He caused us to be born again. According to what though? I love this. I love this. According to what? His what? Say it with me. His great Mercy, that word mercy, that word mercy, it's a, it can be translated and often is translated throughout the New Testament as compassion. It literally means to have one's guts churn. Here's what Peter is saying. When God saw your estate and my estate and our lost condition, it caused his guts 
to churn in such a way that it moved him into action that he would give his son for us. That he would redeem us and give us something we didn't have and we didn't want, that living hope. All of that is according to his great mercy. To be born again is a process by which you go from death to life, darkness to light, meaninglessness to meaning. It's a process. Now, here's the thing. The process of birth is painful for the mother and the child. The child never remembers it, but the mom does. I've been present for two. Didn't hurt me. My wife, it was excruciating. She asked for some medication. They told her, oh, sweetheart, you're going to be a while. She didn't, they didn't even give her a Tylenol before Ryan was born. Same with Caitlin. You'd think that they would have known she's going to go quick. Oh, no. It was painful for her. It was painful. Being born again, being born again is painful. It's painful for both the individual who brings it about. It's also painful for those who experience the new birth. There's something that has to happen. I want to focus not on what God does. We're going to see that next week. But we're going to focus on what happens to us in the process. Something dies. For new birth to occur, something has to die. And that birth... That, that, that death, rather, that something is painful. For Peter, his, his confessional hope is spot on. His functional hope is off. And he watches his functional hopes die before him. Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter, uh, chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. So the context is... Jesus has told the disciples in the Last Supper that I'm going to be betrayed. One of you is going to betray me. All of you are going to abandon me, and I'm going to be crucified. And Peter, of course, being Peter, says, nope, I will never abandon you. Even if I have to die, I will not abandon you. Again, his functional hope, he's got two of them. He's, his hope is in that Jesus is going to make this place a better place to live. And he also has a functional hope in his own ability to stand firm when things get hard. So he is trusting in his own ability. And that Jesus is going to come through for him in the way that he planned. Peter, not Jesus. It's his functional hope. And then, of course, Jesus is arrested. And Peter, so far, being true to form... He's not going to abandon. He takes out the sword. He's going to defend his, his master. And he cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant. Jesus tells him to put the sword away, heals him, and goes off and is arrested. And Peter flees with the rest of them. But he follows at a distance. He follows at a distance. And as he's following, he enters the courtyard. Jesus is being questioned. He's being beaten. He's being punched. So he can, he can see Jesus in the distance in the courtyard. And he is warming his hands. And the first question, you're one of them, aren't you? You're one of the followers of Jesus. No, I'm not. Don't know the man. Moves on. Moves to a different part of the courtyard. Second question. You, I've seen you. No, no, I don't know him. I don't know who he is. Finally, the third time, he's warming his hands by the fire. 
He's warming his hands by the fire, and someone says, you speak with the accent of a Galilean. I've seen you with him. You're one of his disciples. And Peter begins to call down curses on himself. By the blankety-blank, mother blankety-blank, I don't know the man. And then he hears the rooster crow. And the moment that he hears the rooster crow, he turns and he looks into the eyes of his confessional Savior where his confessional hope is placed and his hopes are completely decimated. Jesus is not going to give him his best life now and Peter in all his moral strength and all his moral fortitude has done the one thing he swore he would never do. Abandon his Savior. And he wept bitterly. In his mind, his life was over, meaningless, and pointless. And it had to happen that way. And here's the deal. God will let you pull out enough rope to hang yourself. He knows that you know what your confessional theology and your confessional hope, but he also knows that you're not really putting your hope there. And he loves us enough to let us experience the disappointment of crushed dreams and crushed hopes. Why does he do that? Because of his great mercy. Because of his great mercy. And you've experienced that pain in a different sense. You put your hope in that, that relationship that so so much promise in the courtship phase. And then you're married and it turns out it's disappointing. You put all your hope in, in achieving achieving these goals and, and you reach for it and, and you work and you strive and you say, I'm going to do this. And then you fail and you fall short and your dreams are lost. And it hurts. Or you put all your effort and your strength and your energy into achieving these goals that are going to give your life meaning. As a Christian, mind you, I'm not saying you're not a Christian. And you climb the ladder of success and you get all the way to the top and you get your goals. You, you achieve it. It's the medal is yours. The position is yours. And you find that the, you've, you've, set, you've climbed the ladder of success and the, the ladder's it's on the wrong building. Or you set your hope in becoming that kind of person which everyone would admire. You're good, you're moral, you're ethical, and, and you want Jesus to be proud of you, and you want your, your friends to be proud of you, and you, you want to be that person, that moral person that doesn't fail. And then you do fail. You find that you're just as morally bankrupt as the people that, that you that you despise. And your hope and your own ability to, be, to accomplish your dreams and your goals is just gone. And Jesus is like, now you're exactly where I want you and where you can receive true hope. Something's got to die. Your old functional hopes, they have to die before the living hope becomes truly meaningful. Becomes truly meaningful. 
Peter thought everything was gone, everything was done, until he met the resurrected Savior. And then he saw, and then he slowly began to understand that this world is not my home. That my life does still have meaning, even though I failed in a way that I didn't think I was capable of failing. If you have failed in a way that you don't believe you were ever capable of failing, there's hope. This is the beginning. When Christ gives you himself, you receive a living hope. It's not based on your performance. It's not based on your potential. It's not based on who's going to win the election in 2024. It's not based on the economy. It's not based on whether or not your spouse sticks with you or leaves you high and dry. It's not based on how well you do in your graduate program. It's not based on any of those things. And please understand me. I have to preach to myself that all the time because I am addicted to performance. And I keep failing. And if I actually believe that my hope is in anything I can do, I will lose that hope. But if I can stand firm and I can recognize that that Christ isn't in that tomb anymore, that he conquered sin and he conquered death, and he plucked me out of the fire and he chose me and he elected me because of his mercy, and he gave me himself, and he grants me his righteousness, he grants me a full pardon, and he, he calls me a friend now, not just a servant, but a friend And he values me as a human being, not for what I can do for him, but because of what he's redeemed me for. That's a living hope. I can't lose that. Neither can you. Neither can you. It doesn't matter what happens next. It doesn't matter where our culture goes. It doesn't matter what kind of persecution we face. It doesn't matter if you succeed or fail. What matters is where our hope is and in whom it is. That's a living hope. I would encourage you to, first of all, evaluate where your functional hope is. Does it align with your confessional hope? Maybe you don't have a confessional hope. If that's the case, I would encourage you to call out to Jesus. Tell him the truth about yourself. Lord, I'm a hopeless mess. I don't know where my hope is, honestly. One minute it's you, the next minute it's my career or whatever. Or I don't even know what to believe about you. Call him and say, Lord, if you are the living God, reveal yourself to me. Save me. Save me from my sins. Wash me. Include me in your redemptive plan. The Bible says, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And for those of you who, like me, have been following Jesus for a while, but you keep catching yourself clinging to, like Peter, things which are not going to deliver, just tell him what he already knows. He won't be shocked. He's not stunned. He's not embarrassed. Tell him, Lord, I am a narcissist. I am addicted to performance. Forgive me. Wash me. Cleanse me. Renew my heart. Renew my mind. He already knows all these things anyway. So whatever it is that the Lord puts on your heart, 
bring it to him. And bring it to others as well. Let them in on where you're struggling. Let them in on your functional hopes that aren't in line with your confessional hopes so that you can pray for one another. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for, thank you for choosing us. Thank you for giving us a living hope in the person of Christ. You are worthy of our worship. And Lord, give us, fill us with your spirit that we might worship you in power and we might worship you in truth. In Jesus' name, amen.